Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, it's Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 423 of the podcast for September 15th, 2021. Our guest today is Laura Kriska. She is the author of a book, a recent book called The Business of We. She's also the author of a previous book called The Accidental Office Lady, which is about her time as the first American woman to work for Honda headquarters in Tokyo. So she has a fascinating story. We're going to hear her story. We're going to hear her perspectives on um, quality improvement on the Toyota production system, even though they don't call it that at Honda. And we're going to talk about um, what she means by building a we culture in organizations. So this is not the typical hardcore lean conversation that we have here in the podcast, but Laura is uh, really, really wonderful. And I, I, I think, I hope you'll enjoy the conversation today. For links and show notes and more, more information about her book and her work, you can go to leanblog.org slash 423. We're joined today by Laura Kriska. She describes herself as a cross-cultural consultant. She's an author. We had a chance to talk previously episode 61 of My Favorite Mistake. So I'll encourage you to go listen to that episode. We're going to have a different conversation today in a lot of ways. We're going to take a deeper dive into a story that Laura told there um, in in that podcast. So before I tell you a little bit more about Laura, let me first off say um, thank you for being here today. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks, Mark, for having me on this podcast. Yeah, I'm glad we could talk again. Um, if you, you know, people who maybe did hear that other episode already know this, but let me tell the audience here about Laura. Um, when she was just 22, right out of college, she became the first American woman to work in the Tokyo headquarters of the Honda Motor Company. Her experience working with thousands of middle-aged Japanese men inspired her to write uh, her first book, which I've had a chance to uh, to read good chunks of here, called The Accidental Office Lady. And for those who are watching on YouTube, you can see she's holding that up. The uh, There's in the original cover. It looks yeah. sort of sci-fi. Is that like supposed to represent high tech or? I think at know? the time it was considered very, you know, techie. Yeah. That's how long ago this was. <laughs> I like this cover better. Yeah, there's the more modern uh, update refresh of it. Um, What what year was was the book published? Uh, I think 1997. Okay, it's a long time ago. Yeah. Um, So there are a lot of you know uh, know, we'll have a chance to touch on that story that Laura told uh, much more deeply in her book. But then those experiences and experiences she's had since inspired Laura to create what she calls a we-building revolution. So her latest book, and we're going to talk about this today also, is called The Business of We, a new approach to diversity, um, working through cultural differences, um, being more inclusive. It's, it's aimed on uh, aimed to increase employee retention and productivity, preventing misunderstandings that would lead to problems like lost revenue, lost time, and increased legal risks. And I, I think the ideas from the book will be really appealing to the audience um, here today. So I'm glad we can talk about all of this, Laura. Um, as, as I got to hear more of the background, um, you know, from where I get to read 
more of the background um, of your story of how you got to work in Japan. Can you tell maybe, you know, for this audience, sort of the longer version of the story of, you know, how did you become the first American woman uh, to work at Honda headquarters in Japan? So this wait, I'm gonna speak in English, right? <laughs> Please. <laughs> Just, I only know like four off. words of Japanese. You are showing up, but but it's I good. am showing up. Well, what are no, your four words? Oh, I mean Let's uh, hear I'm em. gonna say them all badly. I'm self-conscious <laughs> about it now. <laughs> Konnichiwa, kampai. Oh, that's a good one. Origato gozimas. Ohio gozimas. It's not that early here. That, but that, that's really well, all you need, you know, <laughs> hello, thank you, and cheers. <laughs> yes. I love it. Um, you really are a lean no. expert, aren't you? You just no. get right I, to the critical. I, well, I, I didn't learn those words through lean. We'll, we'll come back to your story here, of course. <laughs> but, you know, I know a handful of Japanese words that we use in the lean methodology. Kaizen. Yeah, yeah. very important. Uh, uh, Gemba mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. particular. So. Yep. Um, there, yeah. And there are other phrases, but you know, in my, I've I had a handful of trips to Japan. You've got much deeper experience there. So let back back to your Dark. story. Yes. That's so okay. I um, I was born in Japan. I grew up in the United States, and I spent a year of college in Japan, and and then I went to work for Honda. And as some of your listeners may know, Honda has a huge presence in Ohio, uh, in Marysville, Ohio. I grew up very close to Marysville, Ohio. And I think it must have been before I was going to spend my junior year, I wrote to a new senior executive uh, in um, Honda. He had been a graduate of my college, which was Denison University. And his name is Scott Whitlock. He became a lifelong mentor to me. And I think I just asked for money. You know, I'm going to Japan. I'm, you know, going to university. Please give me money to sponsor this. And he wrote back saying, good for you. I'm not going to give you money, but how about a job? And I was offered a job as a lifeguard in the sports center. <laughs> okay. Yeah, because yeah. that was the only job I was qualified for. I had been a lifeguard for several summers as a teen, and they had just opened the sports center. So I was a lifeguard at the Honda Motor Company Sports Center. And I was still, I was like, I'm going to speak Japanese. So anybody who I could hear, you know, was speaking Japanese who would come into the swimming area, I would start like konnichiwa, just as exactly the phrases you would, you know. And I ended up meeting um, the, a woman whose husband was a very high ranking executive. His name is Shige Yoshida. He also became a lifelong mentor. And Shige Yoshida had graduated from the college that I was about to go to for a year. And so because of these encounters and because I had actively, you know, fostered this connection, I was genuinely interested in all these, you know, different people and learning about them. Um, he provided an introduction that led to a part-time job while I was studying in Japan as, a, you know, an exchange student. When I came back to America, I had, you know, I had to find a job and people from Honda remembered me. I I'm sure I communicated with Scott Whitlock and others. I had an internship and then they hired me right out of college. Like a week after graduating from college, I was on the assembly line at Honda Marysville on in the factory. And it was part of my training. And there was a part of me that was just like, 
what am I doing? This is a crazy, you know, I just graduated from college and now I'm working on an assembly line. And I, I found it very overwhelming, but also really exciting. And so you, that training, it's interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm curious how they framed it for you. Why that training to work on the assembly line in Ohio would tee you up for working in an office setting um, in Japan. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's not uncommon, it seems. Like people I know who have had different experiences studying Toyota or um, working for Toyota, they are known for sending people to Japan to work mm -hmm. uh, in a factory there for a period of time before coming back to the U.S. Even people who, you know, I mean, you know, like, you know, Steve Spear, who's been a guest on the show as a Ph.D. researcher, was given that opportunity because at least, you know, Toyota people would say, well, at their core, they are a manufacturing company. So to understand the company means understanding manufacturing. How, how did Toyota or how did Honda, I'm sorry, how did Honda explain why, you know, what was the purpose for doing that for you? Yeah, it was exactly that idea. Honda is a manufacturing company. So no matter what job you do, if you're in marketing, sales, human relations, legal department, it all comes down to understanding uh, the people who are manufacturing the vehicles. And Scott Whitlock and Shige Yoshida were wonderful mentors, and they explained this to me. And they said, it's important that you understand this. They made it sound really important. And I felt... Um, you know, I felt important. They were giving me this opportunity. Um, I was also being sent to Los Angeles and Detroit and and then eventually Tokyo. And I knew I was going to Tokyo. And it all seemed very connected and helping to pair me to be successful. And it did not take long. I mean, I there was a culture shock for me. I like I remember going to visit Reading and getting some steel-toed boots and thinking, I don't think any other graduates from Denison are getting <laughs> steel-toed boots. <laughs> right. <laughs> and thinking, you know, what exactly is this? But getting a sense really quickly that understanding manufacturing, first of all, it's exciting. It was unlike anything I had done. It wasn't like lifeguarding. It wasn't like sitting in a university classroom and studying from a textbook. It was doing something, making something. I mean, I had no idea how cool manufacturing is. And it is. Making something from nothing or from raw supplies is a cool thing. And I started to understand that. And I got a sense of how hard it is to do that. It is hard work to be on an assembly line. And that's another reason why I think it was a great experience. Because when you're not doing that job, when you're in the legal department or the marketing department or traveling you know, to do things, you know that there are people making the product that sustains the organization that are working on an assembly line, sometimes 24 hours a day. And I think that really keeps the hierarchy of roles in a company. It keeps that in check. Yeah. And, and so that is maybe one element of the, of the culture. I'm, I'm curious, what, what did they emphasize or what did you learn sort of through this experience on an assembly line about, um, you know, kind of training people, how work is done, how improvement mm -hmm. happens. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that was very, 
very prominent in Ohio. And then later when I went to Japan was the idea of quality circles and the idea that people who do the task, who are doing the job, whether that again is in a manufacturing area or an office, that those people often have fantastic ideas. They may not have an MBA. They may not have worked in the company very long, but they are the person doing the job and they often know how to make it uh, less costly, safer, or just a better process. And that was very clear uh, in Honda from the beginning. And I, I think it was a great lesson to learn very early on. Yeah. And, you know, you, you mentioned quality circles. Uh, that is something that listeners may remember and associate with um, the 1980s, the 1990s. It was often, um, you know, framed as part of uh, TQM, Total Quality Management. Mm-hmm. And in a way, like I think that was a bit of, um, as fads tend to come and go, unfortunately, this is not the fault of TQM. This is, you know, like companies mm-hmm. just how it goes. Um People would then maybe find the Toyota production system or lean mm-hmm. as for a period of time um, a fad. Um, but there, there, there's a lot of overlap mm-hmm. in the like the core thought process of you're mm-hmm. describing, engaging people, having a structured way to improve. And I, you know, I don't have good data on this, but I, I bet the use of quality circles has declined dramatically in the United States. In the past decade, when I've had opportunities mm-hmm. to go to Japan. They still have quality circles, mm-hmm. um, and 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 these quality circle projects may take many months. And mm-hmm. and some of the organizations there, at least what I've seen, haven't thrown quality circles away. They now may be layering other methods on mm-hmm. top of that, which might mm-hmm. be inspired by Toyota, or it might mm-hmm. they might sometimes they even use the the terminology lean. So I think you know this mm-hmm. is still to this day for the right circumstances for the right type of problem. Something that's very very useful in, in terms of that structure. Yeah, it, it's all about making things better that you used the word earlier, Kaizen. And this is something I really admired about my Japanese colleagues and about Honda in general, which is there is an acknowledgement and awareness that we can always do better. And times change, products change, raw materials change, and, and just keeping that idea that we can do better uh, by examining the situation, looking deeply, gathering data. And I'm going to just depart a little bit toward we building, which is the topic of my new book and the idea that individuals should keep this in mind. Maybe a personal quality circle is the idea of continuing to do better as a human, as a professional especially leaders and especially leaders who identify with what I call the home team, you know, the cultural majority in any organization. If we continue to examine ourselves, which is hard when you've been super successful and when everybody around you rewards you with big salaries and promotions, you know, it's kind of hard to stay humble, but it's so critical to the quality circle process to Kaizen. And so we building is a kind of, it can be, we building can be a personal Kaizen self-improvement mechanism that can create a much better productivity, um, a safer and more welcoming, inclusive environment. 
And that, yeah, that idea of personal improvement or personal kaizen, that we can, mm-hmm. we can uh, become more respectful of differences. We can be more inclusive, different um, types of people or people with different um, characteristics from, from ours and, and, and finding. So, well, let's say, take a little bit of a dive into when you talk about the business of, of we, mm-hmm. um, how, how, how would a leader go about improving the way they, um, build bridges, if you will, instead mm-hmm. of reinforcing the divides? Yeah. I, I think again, reflecting on yourself. So, so much of our workplace and um, spaces are populated by people who are different from us. They don't look like us. They maybe speak a different first language. They have a different background. And this is a predictable evolution. And, and it's correct that, that the, you know, so many different people are working in, in, in conjunction with one another in factories, in boardrooms, et cetera. And so to recognize that, to see the difference, first of all, to not be afraid to name difference. This seems to be so uncomfortable for people. And for example, naming uh, ethnic differences or naming race is seems to be so difficult, but it shouldn't be. Um, I understand why it's difficult. You know, I grew up in the color blind era. And so I was taught never to name race, uh, to you know, think of, you know, just, just treat everybody equally, treat everybody the same, which is a lovely sentiment, but it doesn't happen. And it turns out that race tends to be very important to people, especially when they're not white. The world views us through our visual experience and our history shows that race as a social construct has an impact on how people are treated, how they're spoken to, how they're hired or fired or promoted, whatever it is. So learning to talk about race, ethnicity, nationality, religion, whatever the differences are, learning just to talk about them in a way that um, isn't promoting uh, division, isn't causing fear and discomfort is something that every leader in corporate America should be doing. And one of the ways to do that is finding um, talented diversity and inclusion uh, leaders, consultants. There are so many talented people who can provide this um, education that we really desperately need right now. Yeah. And this is something I've tried to get more comfortable speaking about in um, the past year, especially um, I, your phrase of the home team mm. in almost every imaginable way as um, somebody in an American workplace, I, I am the home team mm-hmm. as a, a white straight male mm-hmm. with, um, a, with a, a good college education mm-hmm. and, um, pretty much every advantage or we could even say privilege mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 and recognizing, trying to understand the perspectives of people who um, don't feel welcome mm-hmm. in one way or another. Um, it, it's, 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 it's something I think it's important to challenge ourselves to think about other perspectives. Like now you, you had a, a much 
deeper version of this experience. So I don't you know, I want to hear about when when you were working in Japan, you were very clearly, visibly not part of the home team, if you mm-hmm. will. Mm-hmm. Um, when I've had even just short 10 day stints in uh, Japan, if I'm somewhere alone, I'll look around and I might be the only white person mm-hmm. around. And mm-hmm. now I, I, I'm not trying to draw parallels to let's say a workplace where somebody here in the U S is the only black woman in mm-hmm. the room. I'm not trying to say that that's equivalent, but mm-hmm. it does, I think ch- change your perspective a little bit to realize, okay, I stand out or, or, or what do I need to do culturally to try mm-hmm. to fit in? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't fit in, but to, to, to try to do a better job of, of fitting in. So, I mean, what were your experiences mm-hmm. as, an office lady, quote unquote, you know, it would be mm-hmm. interesting to hear a little bit about like what that role was and how was it being the only white American woman in that environment? So I really like your example and it illustrates a truth that I have figured out by talking with thousands of professionals. And that is that everybody has felt like an outsider at some point in their lives even straight, white, middle-aged, successful men who are advantaged in every way. This, I feel like this is America's favorite punching bag or these days. And you know, I am a middle-aged, uh, straight, white female. So I'm very close, very close to that home team. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm a huge fan of straight white men. I I have married one. You know, many of the people I love most in the world fit into that category. So it's not a problem to inhibit and inhabit that um, identity, but it is if you don't recognize that it gives you an advantage. That's that's just the the fact. Um, When you grow up in America, there are many advantages. Sometimes they're not obvious. Uh, It doesn't mean that you've had an easy way of it, uh, but it just means there are built-in structural privileges and advantages um, when you're on the home team. So when you, but even like you said, when you went to Japan, you felt like an outsider. I certainly felt like an outsider. And and as you said, very clearly, it's not the equivalent of of somebody in a different race here in the United States. But because almost everybody I've spoken to can articulate a time in their lives when they felt like an outsider, it provides a vehicle for understanding how to behave as somebody on the home team. And it starts with the smallest gestures. So when I went to work in Honda in Japan, I thought I knew what I was getting into. You know, I speak some Japanese. I was, um, assigned to work with other office ladies and the office ladies, um, there were 10 office ladies in the executive team. And I was going to be on that team. And we supported the executives of Honda Motor Company, which is very common, you know, set up. But even though I tried to fit in, I, I, I wore this blue uniform that we all were required to wear. I spoke in Japanese. I tried to follow the rules, but there was so much invisible information that I didn't know. And I didn't know I didn't know it. That was part of my hubris as a 22-year-old, just thinking I understood everything. Mm-hmm. So it was through the process of you know having some painful encounters and then taking the time to start to learn deeply about this other group. 
And what I learned shocked me. I made a huge mistake. This is what I call being cross-culturally careless. I assumed that because I understood information on the surface, that I also understood deeper information about this group. And I didn't. That I mean, that's the the danger of stereotyping. You get information about a group of people or a person or a cultural group on the surface, and you think you know, but you don't until you have experienced and really researched uh, face-to-face interactions of increasing depth. I think it's impossible to fully understand the values, the motivations, uh, the assumptions that that group makes. And once I understood those things, it made a huge difference. And what can you share an example of mm-hmm. an adjustment you made and maybe in the context of that? Like at what point, mm-hmm. like where, where's the balance between the home team being accommodating to you versus mm-hmm. you adjusting to fit in with the home team? Well, in my case, I was I chose to go to a completely different country. So I think it's different than when you're like, like working here in America. It was I really view when, when you're traveling and doing business, the visitor is the one who has the burden to, to to adjust mostly. The local, you know, group can and should make some adjustment, but the big adjustment is on the visitor. And that's different here in America, where we have a very diverse and interconnected uh, population of people. So in my case, um, I was really trying to adjust and understand. So part of an example is use, I'm going to go back to the whole idea of quality circles. So I, when I went to work there, you know, there are things that um, really were not what I liked. Like I, I mentioned this blue uniform. Did I mention it was polyester? (laughs) (laughs) It was a vest and a skirt, blue polyester, women only. Women only? Are you kidding me? Is what I was thinking. But what what I said with my mouth was, Oh, thank you so much. You know, they gave me some uniforms on the first day because I was a visitor. I had to adjust. And I made assumptions because the hundreds, you know, two or 300 women who worked in the headquarters wore that uniform. So I made assumptions that they were on board with this. Nobody ever said anything negative. So this was something I'm going to adjust to. Quick quick question about that. Yeah. Were all of the women there in a quote unquote office lady mode uh, yeah. role supporting, or even if they were there in a different role, they still had to wear that uniform as opposed to, I mean, it wasn't maybe a, a u- issued uniform, but the men were probably wearing dark suits, white shirt, dark mm-hmm. tie. Yes. It was almost a uniform, but not really. Correct. So you're, that's an insightful question. So the answer is women had various jobs. There were a few women who had positions of authority in the organization, and they dressed exactly like women who were temporary clerks. And that was part of the problem that I had. I didn't think it represented the professional image that many of the women had, the jobs that they had. And you're right. The men had an informal uh, uniform, dark suits, white shirts. That was probably, you know, 99% of the men followed that informal rule. But it was the, you know, basic rule 
that I didn't like. I didn't like the structural inequality. Women, here's a uniform. Men, do what you want. And, but I, I didn't really question it that much. But then the company, as it does every year, invited employees to come up with an idea for Quality Circle, an annual event at Honda. I had witnessed this um, in the United States, and I saw how effective Quality Circles could be. Researching root causes, you know, the Gemba, going to the source. So I had been working in Honda for over a year at this point, and I had developed important fr friendships, relationships with two office ladies in particular. And through these relationships, through spending time face-to-face, -face, we had lunch, we would spend time on weekends, we eventually traveled together, I knew their families. I mean, we had real trust built up. I learned that they didn't like the uniform either. Mm. What? You don't like the uniform. <laughs> so I'm not the only one, I realized. Yeah. Yeah. So the so there's this awareness of this data, and I'm thinking they don't like it for the same reasons I don't like it, of course. So I decide when the quality circle invitation comes around, I'm going to start a quality circle. So a little side note is that I worked in the executive secretariat to the executives of Honda Motor Company, and no office lady in the history of Honda had ever initiated a quality circle. It was like on anything, on anything. It was almost like an unspoken rule. We're not supposed to do that. I'm not sure, but it was all. So it just the fact that I initiated a quality circle was controversial. None of the office ladies I worked with would be on my team, <laughs> but I had also developed these other relationships with the women who had very professional roles, women who were making careers in sales. Um, there was somebody from. Um, yeah, there, I definitely remember a woman from sales department and um, maybe in planning and leadership, but, you know, women who took their jobs very seriously and had told me they felt embarrassed to show up to meetings, especially with visitors from overseas, because these were people they had spoken with on the phone, had cultivated professional, you know, reputation. And then when they would these visitors came to the Honda headquarters, you'd go to a meeting room. And the first thing would happen when you went into a meeting room is that a woman serving tea, wearing a uniform would come in. And then the next thing that would happen is that the women professionals would come join you and they'd be wearing the same thing as the people serving tea. And that was irritating to them. It, it did not send the right message. Yeah. So we, started this group and we leaned that topic out. <laughs> I mean, we ex examined the root causes and what are other companies doing? And we took surveys. Um, thanks to this invitation to be on the podcast, I found a folder. Can I show you some of the images? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I found a folder with all of these um, overhead projected images. Let me put it in white. Uh, <laughs> oh, that sound. That's an old, that sound, sound brings back memories. The Isn't it crazy? <laughs> and yeah. we, it, we did surveys and we asked people, let's see, this one is, Some it's all data. in Japanese. I, right. I used to be able to read all this, but we asked, you know, what did you think? And so we gathered data and we examined the issue thoroughly. 
And once we did that, I thought it would be very clear that, you know, one of the biggest reasons to to abolish women's uniforms, that was the, the theme, the title, was because it was not equal with men. And we on one of those, I, I was just translating it earlier because I couldn't read it. We asked 158 women their opinion. And there were four reasons for why they wanted to change the uniform policy. Being equal with men was the lowest. This is the one. <laughs> and the number one reason they wanted to change the policy, it saved time. They didn't have to go to a locker room and change into the uniform from their street clothes. So this was a shock to me. You know, here I am walking into this thinking, well, we're just going to make things equal because everybody agrees with me. And in fact, they, you know, some people agreed with the equality issue, but mostly um, they wanted to save time. Very practical. The other reasons were um, they wanted to uh, have a better image. And what was this? Um, They wanted to be able to wear the clothes that they wanted to wear. But it had very little to do with this, you know, value of equality. Yeah. So that was, I mean, I think as we learn problem solving, even in the context of the Toyota production system or, or lean or however we label it, there, there is a lesson there of being careful about assumptions, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. either assuming we know what the problem is, assuming we know what the cause is, or assuming we know what the countermeasure or solution is. Should be, but at least it sounds like then, okay, you had this discovery. Yeah. Better to discover that than to keep marching forward with maybe people nodding their heads in polite agreement, mm-hmm. but not, you know, that, that it came through in the data. Yes. You. And, and uh, again, I'm just going to make a quick departure into we building, which is exactly that process is, is learning what people who feel othered, you know, you might have assumptions, you might think, oh, because of this or that. But really talking, and more importantly than talking, listening to people who have the lived experience that is different from yours so that you can understand what's motivating the feeling of being an outsider, what motivate, what, what makes them feel unwelcome or even unsafe. So again, this goes to leaders and modeling this behavior and taking the time prioritizing this effort to learn the invisible data about a different cultural group that is relevant to your workplace. Because when you get that data, you can adjust. So, and and, um, you can move forward and and Kaizen, you can improve your workplace. So in our case, with the Quality Circle, uh, we gathered all this data. I learned that, you know, really... Uh, emphasizing the point of equality was not going to be the driving force. And we adjusted our presentation. We didn't emphasize that as much. We measured, um, again, we measured all kinds of things, the cost to the company, what other companies were doing, um, the reputation, et cetera. And we eventually presented our findings during the quality circle system but we were not able to fully uh, execute on our ideas. You, you, usually you get to put your practice, your idea into practice. You measure that and then you persuade everybody. It's a better way. Like but to go couldn't. do a test. You mean. Yes. Yes, okay. exactly. So we weren't able to do that. So eventually our idea kind of changed trajectories and went to the planning department 
And they then studied this for an entire year. (laughs) I had given up. I decided that they had just, you know, they didn't want to, they were just entertaining us and, you know, oh, isn't that nice? They want to get rid of the uniform. But in fact, to be fair, they went through their own process and eventually concluded that the women's uniform should be made optional. And one day, shortly before my time in Japan um, ended, uh, a message went around the company. Hey, everybody, starting on Monday, there's a new policy. And the new policy is that women can choose whether to wear a uniform or not. Yeah. And that was very exciting. I think I have one slide. I know this is probably annoying to try to show the one slide, but um, the people on the, in the team were very excited about, you know, what's happening. And I remember we, um, we all gathered that day at lunch to examine like, oh my gosh, what's happening. I can't believe this, this, you know, they're actually going to move forward with our idea. And even though it it was slightly different than we had hoped, oh, here it is. I just love this little image, (laughs) this uniforms. (laughs) Um, I say blouse plus skirt plus vest. Yeah, plus vest. Um, And then, you know, we were like, they're getting rid of it. And then what really was interesting is then what happened. So on that Monday, you know, there were people like me and the team members we abandoned the uniform first day and there were people um, who weren't so sure, but I, I, I remember this very clearly. I was um, in the ladies room one day and I could hear people. They couldn't see me, but I could hear two women saying, you know, what are you going to do? Are you wearing the uniform or not wearing the uniform? And I was fascinated to hear how they were thinking about this. And what I saw was not just one person changing her mind. It was a whole department would change on the same date. Clearly, there was this, you know, consensus building on uh, with the members of a certain department, like the marketing department or the public relations department. And so they were kind of coordinating. And slowly over time, most groups completely abandoned the uniform. Now, my prediction or or guest here, or my guess is that the office ladies in the executive office stuck with the uniform. Mm-hmm. They stuck with it very for a very long time. It's so funny, Mark. I'm trying to remember what actually transpired. I think it was when the most senior office ladies decided that they could stop wearing the uniform. They, you know, it's a much more conservative group, but ultimately they did stop wearing the uniform. And I, you know, I had gone back to America and then I visited, um, I think that within the first year and they had all abandoned the uniform and they looked more professional and they, I mean, they could have kept the uniform, but nobody did. I think only the mail room, the mail room women very distinctly did not want to get their clothes dirty. And the mailroom was a little bit more dirty because they had to do, you know, all these packages and things like that. And as I recall, and I don't know now if the mailroom still has it, but um, it was only the women in the mailroom who kept the uniform. 
So it showed that process, even if it took some time, um, consensus building can be very slow. And it maybe it's hard to tell the difference between um, really studying an issue and stonewalling. And some of that may be business culture, Japanese culture, um, differences from the way we, we might expect or want things to work in an American workplace. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how that affected, you know, all of the Japanese working in Ohio coming into a situation where they were not on the home team. In some ways they were because it was a Japanese company, but they were in Ohio. That would be yeah, interesting I to mean, know their perspective on that. The home team shifts. Uh, it, it's basically whoever has access to power and money. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of companies that I've worked with, especially foreign companies, even in the United States or if they're in Europe somewhere, the home team is a particular nationality, you know, and when the home team shares certain identity characteristics, you know, the same language, um, the same ethnicity, whatever, uh, then, then you get the kind of kind of us versus them divisions that can cause problems. Um, And that's where I think it's so important to recognize if you are associated with that home team, Again, it doesn't mean just because you share those characteristics that you also have access to power and money, but it means that others might view you as having special access. And it's possible that you are granted that privilege of special access simply based on your identity characteristics, as opposed to your role in the company, your skills, your experience, and so, and so forth. Yeah. So, um, you know, thinking again to the the more recent book, The Business of We, do you have recommendations how for how people on the home team um, can share that power, better understand other perspectives instead of making an assumption? Mm-hmm. What, 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 what sort of advice would you give to leaders who are trying to navigate these waters? So the first piece of advice is get comfortable. As we talked about earlier, do your own work um, by listening to experts to just be comfortable talking about these. I I hear so many people say, you know, I want to to talk about this, but I'm afraid of making things worse. Um, And so going to experts is a great tool. And if you need experts, uh, contact me on LinkedIn. I know a lot of people who are really qualified to help navigate this just so you can talk about it. Um, The second thing I recommend is to examine yourself in relation to a specific group. And I, I recommend this to everybody all the time because culture differences are always present. So if you, um, so in my book, I talk about these three steps of we building. And the second step is called the self-evaluation, the us versus them self-assessment. It's 10 simple yes or no questions. And anybody can utilize these questions. They are free and available on my website, which is myname.com, lauracriska.com. And this, these 10 questions um, provide a measurement. They provide a number. It's from zero to 10. It's a lot like stepping on a scale. Uh, it gives you one indication of your level of integration with this other cultural group. 
And you have to decide what that cultural group is going to be. Um, just this morning, I was talking to a colleague who is, is my age, a middle-aged person, and works with a lot of gen, uh, Generation Z. And so he was doing a lot of research to try to understand Gen Z because it will help his organization. And he didn't, you know, he was reading and listening. And, and so you can measure yourself in relation to any group as you identify it. And it's really important that you select it on your own rather than me saying, you know, you should examine this cultural group. And if people even pause for five seconds, I'm sure they can think of several cultural groups that are relevant to their lives, to their work lives and to their private lives. So then you measure yourself. And if your score is low, then invest some time and prioritize increasing your score. Increasing your score is accomplished through face-to-face -face interactions of increasing depth. And, and the way I often advise people um, to do that is to think of the thousands of decisions you make in a week, right? The human mind is making decisions all the time. Where am I going to get my food? Um, how am I going to get this thing done? Uh, you know, who's going to be my consultant for this project or whatever? And before you make the automatic familiar choice, pause and think about uh, alternative places or people to meet those needs that you always have. If you're going grocery shopping, uh, think about going grocery shopping in a different neighborhood. If you need a photographer for something, think outside your normal circles to get advice or who might be a good photographer and try to expand the idea of who belongs who are people in your world and how do you get your needs met? Um, and so if you expand those choices, even just one choice, I usually ask people to think of one thing they could try to do, make one commitment that broadens that idea of who belongs, the idea of who is we, right? Who belongs? Um, if we all start doing that more and more, we will expand the notion of we and the us versus them dynamics will become more narrow. We will have less fear of others. We will have less uncertainty in the misunderstandings. And the actually, we will get safer, more welcoming and productive spaces. And that's what we building is all about. Yeah. Yeah. And what was your, you know, your spark? to sort of, you know, pursue the work that you do and, 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 and leading to the book. I'm, I'm curious, maybe it was a way of asking the question of like, you know, you have this time in Japan at some point you, you may have had a decision between pursue a career with Honda, which could have been a lot of it back in Ohio or in the United States versus pursuing a different path. Like what, what was your, you know, what were the, the kind of the, the points you remember of like making a decision about, which path to pursue? I was offered the chance to, when I was working at Honda to um, be in charge of a group of students who Honda was sponsoring to take to Japan for, I think it was a two week, pro, uh, two weeks. They were high school students in Ohio. Uh, I think we worked in coordination with the YMCA, you know, it's just like a community event. And I was chosen as a leader for this. And I loved it. I loved it so much. I spent hours preparing and planning. 
And it was after doing that job and feeling so central to that uh, initiative, to the learning that went on. I was a real go-between helping these students, these high school students from Ohio, really expand their notion of who belonged. I I didn't talk about it that way at the time. And I realized this, I was probably 24, 25, you know, mid twenties. And I had been working at Honda for five years, four or five years. And I recognized that while I liked being at Honda, Honda's manufacturing company, you know, they make cars. I don't care about cars. I don't care about cars that <laughs> sure. much. I don't. Sorry. Or motorcycles that. or yeah, other. I just, yeah, I don't, yeah. I'm not that. I just don't love it. And I loved teaching and I loved helping people expand their life experience and their notion of who belonged. And I recognized that I wanted to be part of an organization. I wanted to be doing work that was the central part of that organization. So I eventually made my own uh, organization where I do that for my job. And I'm so grateful for it. I love doing what I do. And for people who might be interested in in working with you on some level, can you share, I know there's more on your website, but um, types of ways companies, um, leaders engage you in helping them? Yes. Uh, So I'm doing more what I call we building initiatives. Um, Usually a two or three month engagement over a period of time. Some of it's virtual. Some of it will be in person. And the notion is, that as people are going back to the workplace, as you know, many people are starting to do, especially after the summer, there is a rare opportunity to establish new norms of inclusion. I don't think we're ever going to have this opportunity again. And so we building is teamwork plus inclusion work. And so it's really exciting to be planning these initiatives that Often we'll start off with a virtual event that's for the whole organization. And then we do we building kind of webinars. And then we do work in person. I use a, a simulation exercise I've done for many years on four continents with thousands of people that's very engaging and really helps people reflect on how they work. It's not just about diversity and inclusion, it's just about how we want to be as an organization. And the whole idea, the notion is, let's not have divisions that slow us down, that cause misunderstandings, that disrupt our productivity and our welcomeness and our inclusion. And so creating a we mindset is absolutely the goal of any we building initiatives. And it's, I'm so excited to be able to be offering this now, again, at this rare opportunity. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like there are opportunities to to create inclusion and that we culture across dimensions of um, gender, race, religion, sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. But then maybe also I I think of, let's say, healthcare, where there's often divisions between professional groups, creating more of a we culture, let's say, you know, uh, physicians and nurses is an opportunity that comes to mind. A hundred percent. So the simulation activity I utilize was developed exactly for that problem because 
that us versus them dynamic has existed forever. You know, white collar versus blue collar, like you said, doctors versus nurses. And when those divides become deep and, and wide, it impacts the customers. It impacts the bottom line of the organization. So even if you are somebody who still doesn't like to talk about, you know, inclusion and you're uncomfortable, uh, there is a strong business case to be made to getting people in a we mindset. It is good for business and it's the right thing to do. So we building is a solution for any us versus them gaps that exist in the workplace. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's, there's big opportunity there. And like you say, as, as with many things, we could talk about um, workplace safety as being a, the right thing to do and be good for the business on, uh, on, on, on many levels. Mm-hmm. So um, it's, it's good to have those um, at least to have um, that, that overlap between right thing to do good for the business. I, I, mm-hmm. I, I share that, that, that belief for that view. And um, I hope people will, will check that. Uh, we'll, we'll think about that and um, check out the book again, the, the, the most recent book, the business of we is uh, Laura's uh, book. You can learn. You can find the book um, Amazon, other uh, places online. Uh, her website again is laurakriska.com. I'll put a link in the show notes if uh, the spelling isn't obvious to, to anyone. K or K. Well, Laura, like uh, my sister spells, you would probably say the correct way: L A U R A, not mm-hmm. Laura, but Laura mm-hmm. and Kriska K R I S K A. Dot com. I ended up spelling it anyway, but Laura Thank Kriska. You. <laughs> um, you know what? You know, yeah, my uh, my name is short, but probably misspelled more often than yours. So I try to <laughs> be helpful that way, and um, I, I, I try not to uh, butcher my pronunciation of Japanese words and phrases. The uh, the handful that I know, but I, I look forward to uh, a day when. Um, we're able to travel back to Japan and mm. go continue learning and experiencing um, everything that we can there. Because, like, it's just in general, back to maybe the question of we. Like, I've I've been fortunate. Um, yeah, I never traveled internationally until I was 25 and finishing mm. up grad school. And having had that opportunity to travel uh, in some different countries in in Asia and um, Europe in particular, it's just it it. I'm struggling with how to, how to articulate it, but um, just seeing different societies and different cultures mm-hmm. um, helps you, I think, be appreciative of um, people and cultures who are different. And I think it also gives you an appreciation um, for, for coming back home as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And to see the strong points in different cultures, different families, different companies, you know, I just don't, subscribe to the idea that there is one right way to be. There are many right ways and some right ways can seem so unfamiliar. They can even feel wrong, you know, but if you open your mind to these other ways of being a human, sometimes you get new great ideas for yourself and you can make your own organization, your own team even better. And, and maybe just as a final thought to explore real quick, I think that can also apply not just to the idea of uh, national culture, mm-hmm. but even organizational culture. Yeah. 
many people that I've worked with have only worked in one industry, mm. being, let's say, healthcare, and mm. they've only worked a lot of times in one organization. Mm. And that doesn't mean everything about that organization or industry is bad, but it's mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't mean it's good. And there are different ways. And I think part of what you know uh, people like me do when we work with healthcare organizations is to try to open people's eyes to ideas mm -hmm. from a different healthcare organization, from a different industry. It doesn't mean everything back in manufacturing was good or applicable, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but to um, to help open people's eyes and. Um, to get past assumptions. So like back mm -hmm. to your first book, The Accidental mm -hmm. Office Lady, there was a phrase, mm -hmm. and you might use, from what I heard you say today, maybe slightly different language. And that book you described as cultural laziness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that can apply to studying another organization like Toyota, where people might have a superficial understanding, mm -hmm. make certain assumptions, and then maybe mm -hmm. get into trouble yeah. um, from an organizational standpoint. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. I used to use the phrase lazy and I changed it to uh, careless. I thought it was a little less pejorative. <laughs> sure. I, I picked up on yeah. that. I'm sorry to throw that old phrase it, back it's out. All right. It's okay. Kai, Kaizen on the language. Kaizen. Right? I always am interested in learning and, and I have felt... Uh, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time in this space and I'm really interested and I've just written a book and there's a part of me that's like, oh, you know, someone's going to criticize me and I'm worried about that, but it's a, going to be a learning experience and I'm, I'm going to try to be humble and vulnerable and be willing to listen because without that attitude, you just, you dig into your position and then you get stuck and then things change around you and you're not keeping up. And this is where we have, you know, going back to our topic about diversity, you know, we have these old 20th century colorblind culture, silent approaches to a 21st century world. That's not accepting that. And so it's again, good for business and the right thing to do to learn a new uh, approach. Mm -hmm. Well, and thank you for sharing your experiences, Laura, of learning new approaches, new cultures. Um, thank you for sharing what you've um, shared in your books, um, most recently, The Business of We. I hope people will go check that out. And if they haven't already, um, you can go find episode 61 of My Favorite Mistake. There's a different story that we didn't touch on here um, related to Laura's first day on the job there at Honda. I think you'll enjoy that story and some of the conversation that we had there. So, Laura, thank you again for doing um, another interview. I'm glad we could have uh, a different discussion. It's good to hear more of your perspectives and um, different, you know, thought-provoking ideas that you're bringing up here. So thank you for that. Thanks for being the guest. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.